Good morning. This morning we are back at 1 Corinthians, and I mentioned the last time I was in chapter 10, I covered verse 13, and I promised you I'd go back to that verse because it's so important. And, excuse me, as you're looking at the whole context, some people think, well, it seems a little out of place, but I hope to show you it's not at all out of place. This is central to the bigger message of Paul's warnings about what's to the Corinthians and some of the things that are going on. And I also think it's very uh, essential for us to know that there's a way out when we're in the midst of temptation. And so we'll be covering that today. As we're still on the title slide, I'll read the text. It's just two verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 from the ESV. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, uh, flee from idolatry. So that's what we will be studying today. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that we are so privileged to look into the words that you've spoken through your apostles and prophets, the words of Scripture that give us wisdom leading to salvation, that give us wisdom for Christian living, and encourage us as we hope in your ultimate freedom and deliverance through the resurrection from the dead. Help us, Lord, as we study together your precious word in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to the first slide, which is just the first sentence of verse 13. Common to human beings, temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I talked about this couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and there's a word in the Greek, I have it on the slide transliterated, anthropinos, and uh, it means human-like. Because we live in a fallen world, human beings have been created in the image of God, according to Genesis, are fallen, and every human being who's born born in the image of fallen Adam. We see that in Genesis. So temptation that comes our way is common to all human beings, anthropinos. So Paul is telling the Corinthians that what they're facing, and we'll talk about that in some detail, the Temptations which the Corinthians faced, which have been the topic of Paul's exhortations, are called with a double negative, no, and then not. So that means common. So they cancel each other out. Anthropinos. And it means that the pressure, the word for temptation, is prosmos, and it means pressure. Literally, pressure. Temptation is pressure, which uh, 
is common to all people and it's, it's very uh, central to the teaching here that we're looking at. It's used as a verb twice, a verb once, and a noun twice. So every human being is tempted. Every human being is under pressure to cave in. And the things that we face as Christians in whatever era of history, whatever context, whatever is going on in each one of our lives, we are under extreme pressure. And Paul is telling us this is not different from what all are facing. The dangers are greater than we realize. And the way out that the world has is a fatal one. The way out that God provides is a saving one. And we want to be able to know the difference. And so I'll be talking about that. Turn with me as we're here to Deuteronomy 8, and we'll, we'll look at verses 2 and 3. In the context, as you're turning there, I'll make some comments. In the context, Paul is using the example of what happened in the wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness, when they succumbed to temptation, the trials that they went through, when they were under Moses. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 10. So let's go back to that event, the wilderness wanderings, and see what we can learn from things in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you. There's a word I'll talk about in a second. Testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, that is Yahweh. Now, you're probably already thinking about uh, Jesus' temptation. We'll go to that. But let's see what we can learn here that applies to the Corinthian Christians and to us. So, you're to remember the way the Lord led you. Ago is the Greek word for led, to bring or carry. He carried you. He led you into the wilderness. Yahweh brought them out of Egypt and led them into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, they met severe temptation. And so when Paul is saying that no temptation is overtaking you, that's not common to man, he's referring back in the context to what the wilderness wanderers faced. And there's something that is different for a Christian, and I'm going to emphasize that in this sermon. And we can get the intent right here in Deuteronomy 8. The Lord led you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're serving him, we were singing about that, it's because of an intervention of God. It's because of a work of grace. Because of forgiveness of sins. 
because God made you a part of his holy people, saints. And saints are tempted as the wilderness Israelites were tempted. God carried them out of Egypt, led a go, if you use the Septuagint, and led them by the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, and there they were tempted. He humbled you. Dear ones, walking out the Christian life is a very humbling, sometimes actually humiliating experience. It's very difficult. We'll make grand claims and turn out we can't live up to them or we don't live up to them. And there's weeping, difficulty. We weren't able to carry out on some things we thought we could. And we're learning a lesson. And why would God humble somebody and let them be hungry? Why would God provide his own answer rather than letting us just find the same answers everybody else gets? So that we might learn the man does not live by bread alone, but everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Be in a covenant relationship with God. If you had perfect health, abundant finances, lots of friends, everything you could think you wanted, you're in great danger. And it's rare that a Christian finds themselves in that position. It may happen. I'm not trying to get people to give up on having the food they need and the opportunities they're looking for. But most of the time, that's not our state. But whatever the case, whether we have a lot or we don't, we still must depend on what God has said, our relationship with him, his promises, his love, his care. We need it. We all do. And God's in charge in his providence but what sort of temptations we go through. Now, I have a couple statements I want to make before we go to the next slide. By the way, it says that, you may understand that's a purpose statement in the Greek. Hina, in order that. There's a purpose. Now, here's what was going on in Corinth. Immorality and the temple cults. And it said in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, I'm not going to read all of this, uh, we preached on this and explained the context. Some in Corinth were claiming liberty to go to the temple prostitutes under the slogan, all things are lawful. That's literally what's going on. And Paul is taking their slogan, slogan and say, no, you're not right about that. Not all things are profitable, and some things are downright forbidden. We're going to see that next week when we get into more of 1 Corinthians 10. Some things are actually demonic. And then it says here, um, 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall be one flesh. Citing the marriage uh, statement in Genesis, which is what God ordained. 
verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit. So a bigger sphere of looking at this. To be joined to the Lord is to be in covenant relationship. He is our God. We are his people. And he dwells in our midst as a people, as we know the Lord. The individual and the group both show up in 1 Corinthians. And therefore, there are certain, certain duties that attend being in covenant relationship with God. And primary one is fidelity to the Lord who brought, him to, or brought us to himself. Nothing's more fundamental. And that fidelity to the Lord was being challenged by some in Corinth claiming liberties they did not have. And that included the dining in the pagan temples, partaking of the pagan pleasures. Let's go to the second part of verse 13. We want to know how to get out of this. Describe what it is. How do we get out of it? 1 Corinthians 10, 13b. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so we know from the promises of God, there is a way of escape. Whatever it is, there's a way of escape. Now, I mentioned the last time I preached on this, because I told you I was going to do this again, there was so much to be said, that when I was in my 20s, doing a lot of counseling and doing seminars that are basically how-to seminars, how to be a good Christian, I was looking for a technological solution. I didn't know that's what it was. That's what it was. How-to. How to not be this way. How to overcome. How to do this. How to do that. And technology is knowledge, repeatability, and a technique to put it into play. So you take what you know and you, and you apply it. Now, when it comes to the human psyche, the soul, the inner person, it's so complex and so troubled by the fall that is beyond a technological solution. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God knows the heart. The counseling approach that's so common in evangelicalism is guaranteed to fail. Because you're trying to use technology and knowledge to get people out of problems do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. The other thing, because I know better. I've been around. I know how this works. I was in my 20s. What did I know? So I'm telling people how to solve their problems. It was better to find out that the problems are so complex that they're unsolvable outside of a work of grace. God can do what humans can't. So that's what we need to find here. Faithful God, there's a way it's said in the Greek here that only shows up two times in the Old Testament Greek of the Septuagint. By the way, the original was Hebrew, but Paul is citing from the Septuagint. Faithful God, his terminology comes from Deuteronomy 7, 9. I have that later in one of my apps. 
So we'll leave that for now. But faithful God. But that gives us a good idea about the key. The key is not knowledge. They claim they already had that in Corinth. It's not technique. It's relational. It's that Yahweh has brought to himself a people with his mighty hand, by his mighty power, by saving them, bringing them out, and bringing them to himself. And that that relationship with God is what we need above all else. And this God who loves us and cares about us is so powerful that if we cry out to him and trust in him, we may not have some lightning bolt from heaven that's going to tell us, okay, there's the answer. Try this and do that. It's that he will be the way of escape because it's unique to each person in some ways, but he's going to keep us. So the way of escape, ha ek basis, the exit path, that's what it means in the Greek, the exit path, my claim, and I mentioned this before, is to trust the covenant-keeping God who saved us. It's relational, and therefore it applies to every Christian. It's not some counselor that knows how to do that versus how to do this. Do this and don't do that. Do this and don't do that. Try this, try that. Or it's not some prophet saying, well, you're under a curse from the third and fourth generation. Or you have this demon that's doing this or that. Or you're, you, you're, you were badly parented. You need to be reparented. Or you have the wrong first memory event. This is ubiquitous. And none of it is what God is saying here. They're taking human processes and trying to figure out the complexities of the human soul, which the Bible says is so wicked, no one can know it. The heart is wicked. It needs cleansing. God is faithful. We'll have an application. Deuteronomy 2020, I'll read it to you. Boy, time flies when you're preaching. You might say, but not necessarily when you're listening. Okay, Exodus 2020. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that, another purpose clause, you may not sin. The purpose statement is that the testing comes so that you'll know that God is with you. God is with you. You might say, well, we already know that. The test will prove that it's real. Or maybe show that it's not if you need to turn to God. It says in Exodus, I'll just read this to you, Exodus 34, 7, 6 and 7a, then Yahweh passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, 
34-7, Exodus, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. One of the grand statements from the very mouth of God to Moses when he came to, to him on Sinai and stated his own nature and being. That's in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. God, who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. My claim is that we need to flee to God, not to psycho-spiritual technicians. So much of the resources of evangelicalism is wasted on foolish, man-centered, spiritual, psycho-technology that won't solve the problem. It'll just perpetuate it indefinitely. And uh, it's relational. Knowledge of God isn't just knowledge about God. It's having a relationship with him. God forgives. God cleanses. God delivers. God keeps us. When we take the exit path, he provided and that exit path will lead right to him, to the throne of grace. That's where it leads. And it's a heartbreaker to see what all is spoken to people falsely that leads them into a life of perpetual counseling. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, our last verse from 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, this is a conclusion. It's a logical conclusion. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, this is very tangible in their situation. The pagan temples, and I've cited some of the names of the different gods they had. Corinth had plenty. And the business people in Corinth kept their business connections going by people they knew at the pagan temple the people they dined with, the people they associated with, the people they were saved uh, when they were part of. And they had temple temples dedicated to de- feminine deities and goddesses. They had priests, temple prostitutes, sacrifices to demons. We'll see that next week. All this is there. Everything you needed to be successful at Corinth was at the, one of those temples. And if you were saved from that and came to Yahweh or came to the Lord Jesus Christ under the new covenant here, who is Yahweh in the old, you may very well lose a lot of that. You may lose your friends. You may lose your business. You may lose your family. Eric preached on that from Matthew. A person's... uh, Enemies will be those of his own household. Are we prepared? They were looking at this. Look at what they have there. Money, sensual experiences, sensual worship, uh, pleasure, everything we had and everything we could have. And now we go to Christ and we have a few people gathering together, breaking bread 
and listening to the apostles' teaching. That's all we have now. Are we prepared to flee to the Lord and not allow the siren song of the sensuality that's out there, even in churches, to pull us aside? Flee, fuego, in the Greek, was also used in 1 Corinthians 6.18, where it says, we, I preached on this some months ago, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God that you, and that you're not your own. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Flee. Don't go to that pagan temple with the young girls and the sensuality and all the opportunities. Flee. Run the other way. Get out of there. This is a death trap. The world has death traps all around us. And I, the last line on the slide, I had to redo the slide just before I said it to Christy because this came into my mind. That's my, uh, I wrote that. I didn't get out of a commentary, but I think it fits. No one will flee from what they deem to be an opportunity. Good word for anybody heading off to college. Ah, now I'm not in home and nobody's looking over me. Look at the opportunities. But some of those opportunities will get a hold of us and not let go. Not let go. We're going to look at that in our sermon here. Just think about this. What do people, notice these temptations are common to man, what do people typically flee from? Disaster. That's one example, for example. If somebody's, if the tornado is heading right towards your home, and you know it, and you have a shelter or hole in the ground where you can go, which you do in some states, you flee. Here comes a tornado, you're going to die. You go down in there. You flee from it. If there's a tidal wave coming and you're on the coast, you flee inland. If there's a forest fire coming and you're in the woods, you flee from the forest. Anyone will flee from disaster. And anyone will look for opportunities for what they're looking, want, wanting and desiring. Epithumia, lusting. And so therefore, what we need is a change in how we see what's already in the world. Paul sees the temple down the street, great big huge temple full of people, excitement, opportunity, sounds, smells, everything you could want, a little tiny little house with a few people praying together. Great big temple, everything you want, little bitty home. Dear Lord, help us poor sinners. Think about that. What looks like the opportunity? The temple. Well, it looks like nothing. A little group of Christians. 
So we need to see, because our minds are conformed to the image of Christ by his grace, that what Satan is offering is a disaster. And that we see fellowship with God and other Christians as the greatest opportunity that's ever been put before us. And you'll never believe that if you only believe in the temporal. If you don't believe in a resurrection, you don't believe in heaven, you don't believe in eternal reward, you'll never believe it. So that's the big issue. What's an opportunity and what's a disaster? Dear saints, there are a lot of disasters out there. Satan is parading in front of us and calling them opportunities. A couple statements. We'll get to the, to the applications. I wrote these down. I may have already said this, but I didn't want to forget anything. That there's a way out can be deduced from the wilderness experiences of the Israelites who came out of Egypt. When they called out to Yahweh, he always provided an answer. Now, I think that's what Paul is drawing on. There's always a way out. There always was. They cried out. He said, manna. They cried out. The Egyptians opened the Red Sea so they could get out and drown the army. They cried out, water from the rock. They cried out, bitter water, put the tree in, turn sweet. Because they had Moses as we have Jesus, and when they cried out, God always gave them an answer. But most of them died in the wilderness because they were unhappy with what God provided. And so that creates this sermon from 1 Corinthians. It's, it's based on what really happened. He saved them from the destroyer through the blood of the sacrificed lambs, brought them through the sea, provided water from the rock. He made bitter water sweet. He provided manna. He gave moral guidance through the ten words, ten commandments, which emphasized their relationship with Yahweh. Moses had the tent of meeting where he could find direct answers verbally and logically from Yahweh who would meet him. So then the one more statement. We must see the pagan danger for what it is. Dear ones, it's disaster. Paganized evangelicalism is a disaster. Very sophisticated, high-tech unbelief. And so we look for something else. Let's go to some applications. Escape from temptation is relational and not based on knowledge or special techniques. Two, Scriptures are filled with examples to encourage us to seek God and flee from worldly lusts. That's how simple it is. God's answer is always simple. The world's answer looks enticing and it's often somewhat complex, but it doesn't do us anything but harm. Let's look at the story of Joseph. There's a lot of verses here. I'm basically going to read through the story of Joseph and uh, grasp the main point, which is what the story is all about. Now, in verses 1 through 6, Genesis 39, I want to turn there because I couldn't get it all on these slides. Genesis 39, 
1 through 6. As you're turning there, I'll read it to you. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Now how did that happen? Remember, his brother sold him out. His father, Jacob, had given him multicolored garment, or variegated garment. They got jealous, and they threw him in a pit. And down in the pit, some people came by, took him out, and they sold him to somebody else, and they went and sold him to Potiphar. So he sold him to slavery because he was treacherously treated by his own brothers. Okay. Bought him for the Israelites who had taken him down there out of the pit. And it says, Yahweh, the Lord, was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight. He became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned, that is Potiphar, all that he owned, he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. And thus the Lord's blessing was on all that he owned, the house and the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. With him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Joseph's a great man. God's blessing him. Let him take care of everything. Now what happens? Well, we got a little intrigue here. Now to our slide. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He's put me in charge of all the, oh, excuse me, he's put me, put all that he owns in my charge. Quickly, the next slide. Wait, I got verse 9. Well, let's go to verse 10. And she spoke to Joseph day after day. I want to say something here, though. Notice how Joseph answered the temptation. He used reason and logic. He reasoned. He knew how he'd been treated by his own brothers. He knew what had happened to the Ishmaelites and with the Ishmaelites and Midianites. And now here's the wife of his master. And he used reason. He didn't go into a meditative state. He didn't silence his mind and go to Easter religious. No, he didn't try to turn off all the means being human by trying to get out of your reason. He used logic. He talked about the benefits and the treatment he'd gotten from Potiphar. Dear ones, reason is your friend. Altered states of consciousness are your enemy. You can meditate until your brain won't work anymore and you're still going to be human and you'll still be tempted. Plus, you now have opened yourself up to the demonic. We'll get to that next week. So the motivation to flee was already 
solidified by his speech about his relationship with his master and with God. My master treated me well. God has done all this for me. How could I do this evil? And she spoke to Joseph in the back door text day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. And none of the men of the house were there inside. She caught him by his garment. Think about garments and Joseph is interesting. His brothers were jealous over his garment and she grabbed a different one. So that's interesting. Saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled. Now there is our word. Flugel, Flugel, fled. He ran out. Some things you don't sit there and resist, you exit. He fled. He went outside. The motivation to flee was already solidified by his speech about his relationship with his master and with God. But what happens is more sorrow. As you read along, I'll re- keep reading here, verse 13. And when she saw that he left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought, he had brought in a Hebrew. So we're going to bring the Hebrews into this to make us, to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. Slightly different version, isn't it? And when he heard it, that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and went outside. So uh, she left his garment beside her until the master came home. And when he spoke, she spoke to him these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought, so it's the Hebrews, it's you. Somebody did something wrong. Look at that. He left it beside me and fled outside. And now when his master heard the words of his wife, when she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him, put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was in jail. Now at this point, we can't go any further, but... Joseph, isn't, he has a garment from his, his father. His brothers are jealous. They tr- tricked his father into thinking a wild beast killed him, threw him in a pit, sold a, pulled out of there and sold a mistreated, misused, mis- falsely accused. But Joseph never gave up on his relationship with God. And when the Dreams came, and there came, he, God used him. One guy got out of jail, finally remembered him. He ended up eventually being the one God used to bring Israel safety in Egypt so the promises could be fulfilled. Dear ones, the Bible's full of stories that are historical events to encourage us to be faithful to God and trust the truth, his promises, what he's done, and who he is, so that rather than being filled with bitterness and anger at being mistreated, we're filled with the hope of the promises of God. 
that he will keep us. So I have a statement I wrote on my notes. We must value our relationship with Christ to be more profound than anything else. It's eternal while the lusts of the world lusts of the world are temporal. Those who have no relationship with Christ will mock you, abuse you, and think you a fool for suffering harm and rejection because of Christ's love for you and your consequent love for him. The way out is relational, and God is the one who provides the way and blesses you as you take it. Dear ones, did he not say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Didn't he promise I'm with you? Doesn't mean bad things won't happen. Doesn't mean people won't lie about you. Doesn't mean you won't suffer. But you'll never lose that relationship, which is an eternal one, and he takes care of us. So Joseph fled. Now, you probably thought about this. I'm just going to do a summary of it so we have time. But Jesus' temptation. I have a summary here. I have the whole thing in my notes. It'll take too much because we covered a lot with Joseph. But you probably know about the temptations. Luke 4, 1 through 13. Here's the overview. Now, remember, I'll just cite verse 1 here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led, Greek word ago, means bring or carry, same one we saw earlier in the Old Testament, and the Septuagint, he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. This is a clear allusion to the wilderness wanderers. They were led, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, they were led, and they were tempted. Same words. And I'm, I'm well aware that the Old Testament was Hebrew, but what's cited in the New is the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And so in 40 days, I think, reminding us of the 40 years, he was tempted by the devil. And so there are the three temptations. The, I have on the first statement here, I think the meaning that we're to take away from this. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed, led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So, dear ones, when we're fleeing, we're fleeing into the arms of the Savior. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. We have a compassionate and merciful high priest in the things concerning God. We have one fully human and fully God who was tempted in all ways, but overcame. This isn't teaching us some secret technique. Some say, well, he knew the secret. You quote scripture. Well, I fully favor of quoting scripture. That's exactly what he did. But that's the lesser point that it was scripture. The greater point was what it was, was citing God's promises and provisions. It's relational. There are a lot of really messed up Christians that have Bibles and they can say scripture after scripture, but they don't understand a thing about the faith. Some have all kinds of scriptures and they think Jesus lost his deity on the cross and uh, the, the 
point they make is speak the word. If you speak the word, words have power. Your words have power. Speak your words. Speak, speak. The word comes out. The devil flees. That's not the point here. It's the relationship. If you have a faulty Christ, you don't have a relationship with Christ. I don't care how many words you speak and how many decrees you make into the heavens. It's not the same thing. This is the very Son of God. And he is succeeding where Israel failed. And if we want to be faithful, we got to cling to Christ, not speak our own words like we were little gods. First temptation, bread. He trusted in God's greater provision. Second temptation, worldly glory and power. He will worship and serve God alone. Third temptation, foolish presumption. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, that's literally what happens here. When pressure comes and temptation comes and we go to some other provision, we're putting God to the test. How, how so? How, is, how do you put God to the test? By presuming wrongly certain liberties from the covenant relationship and putting God in a position. He loves us. He cares for us. He protects us. He'll do anything to help us. He's already done it all. And we're tempting him to judge his own people or reject his own people, which is not what he wants. He wants to give us victory. God didn't want to wipe out all the people. It says in Ezekiel 18, I, I take no, the Lord says, I take no delight in the death of anyone who dies. Turn to me and live. So testing God is daring him to judge you. But rather than daring God to judge us, let's just run into his loving arms and know that he cares for us. Jesus prevailed over the temptations where the wilderness Israelites failed. We need to cling to the Lord who can and will keep us if we trust him alone. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Luke 11, 2 through 4. I'm using Luke because Luke is the traveling was the traveling companion of Paul. And a lot of the terminology in Corinthians is very similar to what's in Luke Acts. Luke 11, 2 through 4, Christian Standard Bible. And he said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. The sober-minded Christian realizes our frailty, temptations common to man, the likelihood and ease with which we can fail. And we know that we need the Lord. I've failed. We can look back and have regrets. We do. But what I regret the most, I think most of us do, is not taking the way out that was sitting right there trusting in the Lord. Running to the world rather than running to God. 
So what are the, some comments about this? We pray that we, by God's grace, might bring honor to the name of the Lord by trusting him, living as those who are looking to be right with him at his return. May God's name be honored. I love this phrase here. Father, your name be honored as holy. That is a real thing that will help. We're thinking about the word of God and temptation. If I were to run after some temptation as if it were an opportunity, I would most surely dishonor the name of the Lord and dishonor the gospel. And that is something that will motivate us to flee rather than to give in, that his name may be honored. Your kingdom come. Now, most so much said wrongly about this. It'll be different when the king, we have our resurrection bodies and the king is here on the earth. We're talking about that in Sunday school. If the king isn't bodily on the earth, the kingdom isn't here. We're not in the millennium. Forgive everyone. We need forgiveness. So it's all about humbling ourselves and trusting God. We're not presumptuous about our own abilities. We're not boast that we're greater than others, but sober-mindedly see the danger of falling into sin. It's that simple. Sober-mindedly see the danger of falling into sin. And when God's already rescued us, it'll help to think back on that fact. Now, two more slides. This one's really won't take long. A few repetitions here. I was looking for some examples in the Psalms where people actually did this and testified about it. So this one has four repetitions. I can only get three on the slide. The exit path, trial to God. Psalm 107, 6. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Now you can read the in-between verses. They got into trouble. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Psalm 107.13. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. This is Yahweh. He delivered them from their distress. Psalm 107.19. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. It's repeated in verse 28. Dear ones, what do you do in your time of trouble? Call the theophastic counselor. Learn how to do the Enneagram. Learn how to do sacred reading so the Bible means something it doesn't say. No, 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 it's all bad. Cry out to the Lord. God doesn't change. He delivered them. This is in the Bible for us. He will deliver you. He will deliver you and me from temptation if we cry out to him. One more passage, and keep this one for, at least put a bookmark in it. And uh, Deuteronomy 7, 9, it's really important. There's two times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, where there's a certain way of saying this. Normally, it says God is faithful, which is true. 
that sort of construction. God is faithful. But in the Greek here, it says the faithful God. Faithful is God. The two times we find that, one time is in Deuteronomy 7, 9, and the other in Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'll be using that in my application next week. will be in Deuteronomy 32. Faithful is God. Know, there, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God's promises are given in Scripture. Those who come to Christ are under the new covenant. He sits at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ, God the Son, creator of the universe, came into our world, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, did many miracles to prove his deity, and in his teachings, he, te he gave many, many teachings that are telling us about how to live as Christians. Eric is going through Matthew and showing us th these things, how it is to build on the rock through believing his words and living accordingly. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And just Jesus Christ predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He shed his blood, died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. His resurrection vindicated his claim, and he was he appeared to many witnesses and bodily ascended to heaven before witnesses, promising to come again, to bring judgment to his enemies and salvation to those who long for his appearing. And God's promises are given. If you do not know Jesus Christ today, put your faith in him. He died for sins once for all. And whatever, if, if the word of God pierces anyone's heart, we need to cry out to God. Save me. I've sinned. I've failed. I need forgiveness. I need to be different. I need Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And you'll have a relationship with God through him, God the Son. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. Thank you that you gave, gave grace to Paul to write these things under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. You gave grace to Joseph to flee and others so we may learn. Give us grace to see the world for, to be the disaster that it is and to see relationship with you to be the eternal hope and joy that it is so that we may flee from temptation. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.